be upstairs by now if I hadn't, uh, hadn't I didn't have our power running there, sump pump running. So that's kind of the deal. So I knew that. Also, uh, several people said, uh, Bill, did you get some new clothes? Because I've been wearing coats recently. No, these are actually new old clothes. Um, years ago, before I came here, 13 and a half years ago before I came here, I was at a church that had two services, a traditional and a, and a contemporary. And so between services, I would switch clothes. I would uh, actually wear slacks, you know, not jeans, and I would wear sports coats and a tie and stuff for cert- the first service, which, or, yeah, I don't remember which was which. Anyway, it's a long time ago. But uh, I had all these sports coats and stuff, and I, I had had them in my closet for years. And then when I came to the Midwest, you guys, it's all your fault, uh, you overfed me. And um, so I gained a few pounds, about 20 pounds extra. And then over the last uh, three or four years, I've been trying to lose it, and I just successfully lost most of it. And so uh, the other, about three months ago, I pulled it, went in my closet, and I was doing all the, you know, you're switching over winter clothes and summer clothes and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know if you do that, but it's what I have to do. And, uh, and so I pulled, I'm going like, man, I got all these sports coats. What am I going to do with them? What if they still fit? And I put them on, and they all fit. And I'm, so I've got a bunch of them. These, so they are not new. I have, don't have a single new sport coat. I've got like six or eight something. So they're actually kind of new because I hadn't worn them in years. And uh, so that's, you'll be seeing them a lot during this winter because now as I get older, I think it's older, uh, I, I'm getting colder, and so I need something. Either that or I'm becoming a woman. I don't know what it is. So uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, guys. You know, <laughs> wife always complained about how cold it is, you know, generally. Okay. Uh, anyway, so anyway. Okay. Um, we're starting the whole new series today, the next at least four weeks. It could be five weeks. The reason I say that is because I do have four weeks already prepared in this series, and I possibly have a fifth week as I was preparing the next series, which is going to be called Scripture Alive. Uh, one of the uh, things that we uh, discovered in Israel was uh, a story about Elisha, and that's who we're going to be talking about. And I was going like, well, you know, I might do a sermon on it as well, so we'll see. It's either four weeks or five weeks. Uh, they'll be looking at this. But the series is called Greater. Greater. And the idea for this series, uh, the kind of the title and whatever, came from actually a book that I'd, been, I'd read. Um, actually, uh, Nate, our worship pastor, went to a conference either last year or two years ago and gave, came back and brought all of our staff a book called Greater by Stephen Furtick, who is a pastor of Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's this little church of about 20,000 people. And... Um, um, and, and it was, I hadn't read it, you know, he get, put, it, put it on the shelf, I thought, a great book, and then I didn't even realize I had it, because I went ahead and I, I usually buy all my books are digital, I probably have two or three hundred books on my iPad, and, uh, and so I bought it, and then Nate said, reminded me, hey, I gave you that book, <laughs> and I'm going, oh, sorry, dude, uh, I hadn't read it, so I was reading the book, and it's, it, it's a book, if you want to, uh, to kind of follow along the series, an extra resource, uh, Greater, uh, is a book about uh, Elisha. It's uh, the main things about Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha, okay, in Scripture. There's two different guys, very closely aligned, and we'll be talking about that. But in that book, uh, the first thing it starts off with, and this is a, there's Scriptures that, I don't know about you guys, but there's Scriptures that I read sometimes, and I'm asking God, God, why did you put that in Scripture? Because I can't believe that's true. You ever look at Scripture and go like, that can't be true. It's too hard or, or it's too un- impossible. Well, this is what it says. John 14, 12 says this. I am telling you the truth. Jesus is speaking. Those who believe in me will do what I do. What was Jesus doing when he said this? 
healing people, uh, uh, raising people from the dead, doing all that kind of stuff. It's going like, okay, he says, those who believe in me will do what I do. And then it says this, yes, they will do even greater things. And I'm going, God, you got to be kidding. That's impossible. I mean, we, those who believe in him, can do even greater things than what Jesus did when he walked the earth. And he says that we can do this because I am going to the Father. And he told his disciples later on, he says, I'm going to the Father, and because of this, uh, you're going to be greater things because now the Holy Spirit's going to come in you. It's going to multiply what I do, not just in one person, but all over. And I'm going to ask myself, what does this possibly mean? Does it mean that we, all of us will be around healing people and, and, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and raising people from the dead and, you know, and doing remarkable things? Well, obviously that's not true because we don't see that happening. Even people who are followers of Christ, rarely that ever happens with, okay? But the reality is that there's something there that he's saying. He's saying we can do greater things. God has a greater purpose and plan for our lives than we can even imagine. So as we start off this new year, it's always great to think about what would you like 2016 to be like? How many of you would vote for a better year than last year? Okay, how many of you vote for a worse year than last? No, that's kind of, I don't care what kind of year you had this past year. I don't care what's the best year you ever had. All of us would hope, I would think that we would have a better year, that we'd have, we would just leave the, live the same old, same old. And what I've found in life so often is most of us desire to have, you know, do something greater in our lives. And most believers aren't in imminent danger of, of ruining their lives but we're in far greater danger of doing something else. The greater danger we have in life is wasting our lives. We don't go out and intentionally do things to try to ruin our lives. And we do that, we slip into sin, we do different things in our lives. But we, we sometimes just waste our lives. And that's what Furtick's book's kind of about. And he talks about, and I use this, and then I want to go into talking about Elisha. He says, and this is we start the year, most of us kind of get into a rut it's what we call the good enough life. It's just good enough. It's kind of this baseline living marked by mediocrity, maybe by uh, being stuck in, in a spiritual survival mode where we just kind of go to church and it really doesn't affect our life during the week, or being controlled by complacency. That's just a good enough life. And most of us would say, and when you raised your hand, you're saying, I don't want life to be just good enough like it was this past year. I want it to be better than that. I want it to be greater. But he says, so often what we do is we go after what the world would call greatness. And greatness, according to the world's standards, is this vague, kind of unrealistic aspiration of doing better and that, that doesn't really work in real life because we never really know when we arrive because we don't have any standards to measure it by. That, the world's definition of greatness. And so he says, what God has for us, though, and I believe this is true in Scripture, and we'll see this in a series is that there's a third way. There's not just good enough, there's not greatness, but there's greater. And the definition he gives in the book of, of greater is this, the life-altering understanding that God is ready to accomplish a kind of greatness in your life that is entirely out of human reach. Have you ever thought about that, that God wants to do something in you that you can't do just by yourself? Why do why you need God then if you can do it all yourself? God wants to do something in us that, he can, that only he can do through us. That's what he's saying. And he says this, this, this greatness is beyond what we, you see in yourself on your best day, but exactly what God has seen in you all along. 
Now, we're going to talk about this in this series. What does greater mean? What does it mean to live a greater life? But surprisingly, I find over and over again that my greatest enemy of, of the greater life has got, that God has given me is me. I'm the thing that holds up, and you're the thing that holds up God's life, God's plan for and purpose for your life that's greater than you can even hope and imagine because the Bible talks about it over and over again. And the reason that's true is so often we believe the voice of the enemy, Satan, who constantly whispers in our ear, can't make us do anything, but he tells us you'll never be good enough. God can never use you with your weaknesses, your hang-ups, your secret struggles, your dysfunctions. I mean, God couldn't use you for that because you've had all this past. But God says, when you come to me and I offer you forgiveness, your past is past. Now, you might have some to deal with some of the things in your past, but your past is past. And the good news that I find in Scripture as well, and this is why I love Scripture so much, just one of the reasons, is that it's so true. God doesn't do greater things exclusively through what people we would call great people. Because in Scripture constantly, He does them through anybody who's willing to trust Him in greater ways. But the problem is defining this down, of nailing it down. What does a greater life look like? Because you'll go on TV, you can go on probably this afternoon or, or tomorrow or whenever, and you can watch some TV preacher that'll tell you, tell you, well, if you live the greater life for God, what'll happen is, is that you will have wealth and prosperity. You ever heard that one before? There's a whole gospel around that. It's a false gospel, but it's, it's a whole gospel around it. But, you know, people will tell you that. If you live the greater life, if you trust God enough, then you will have all this faith, and it will lead you to wealth and prosperity. But the reality is that that's not necessarily true. And then the other side, though, you'll have somebody else, and I've read books like this as, as well, um, that, sa- that, says, <laughs> that says if you really follow God and want to live the greater life, you have to almost live like a modern-day ascetic. You have to give it all away. You maybe have to go and uh, give Bibles out in Burma or something, you know, to really live for God. That's the greater life. Or even when I was a youth pastor many, many years ago, when I first came out of seminary back in, golly, 1982, um, back in the dark ages, um, the thing was is that as as I was following along and, and working with students for about 10 years, the reality was, is, is so often they would think that if I'm going to live for God, the only thing I can do to live for God is to go into ministry. That's the greater thing. So everybody else who doesn't go into ministry are losers, right? You're not agreeing with that, are you, for some reason? I don't believe that. You don't believe, because God, God does things, all kinds of things. He, he uses everybody in different ways. It'd be a boring world if everybody was a pastor, some of you are agreeing to that too, too, too much, you know. I'm, but the reality is that's true. And see, God calls us to do different things. God may, may not be calling you to step out into something new even. He may be calling you to step up where you are. Because we can fall into complacency once again. See, God is calling all believers who have settled into a comfortable complacency to a survival mode to something greater. And we're going to look at that over the next four weeks, but we're going to start today, and it's going to be all stories from the life of one of my favorite, new favorite, really in a sense, uh, guys in all the Bible. His name is Elisha. Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha, okay? S-H-A at the end of his name, Elisha. Elisha Elisha was an Old Testament prophet. He uh, trained under the other guy, Elijah, and matter of fact, uh, it toward as we'll look at this later on in a few weeks, toward the uh, when he began actually began his ministry, 
and began his prophetic ministry, he actually asked God for a double portion of what Elijah got. Now, Elijah was a rock star of prophets. You know, the reason I say that is because, I mean, he has one of the coolest stories. Uh, Remember, if you haven't read, if you want to read the coolest story in Scripture of a a throwdown in Scripture, uh, Elijah uh, with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Uh, we were at Mount Carmel a few weeks ago, my wife and I, when we were on a trip to Israel. And, and now, guess what's on top of Mount Carmel? This giant statue of, a, of Elijah. And I'm thinking, it happened here. You know, the greatest. And you think about, you know, wrestling there, you know, if you like that stuff. You know, I mean, it's, the thing is, uh, this is, this was incredible. This is an incredible thing. I mean, Elijah was a rock star. But, but Elisha who followed Elijah, asked God for a double portion of, of his blessing. And because of that, did you know that Elisha, there are more recorded miracles that Elisha was involved in than anybody in Scripture except for Jesus? I challenge you to look it up. Read your Bible. You're going to have to. So, that's what he was. He lived in the 9th century B.C. when Israel was divided into two kingdoms. Uh, and before he was called by God to be a prophet, he wasn't the son of a priest. He wasn't, didn't have any seminary training. He wasn't a monk. He lived at home with his parents working on his dad's farm. That, that was his qualifications. God called this ordinary man named Elisha, we're going to be looking at, to be a prophet. And he ended up being a person who counseled kings, performed miracles, and spoke on behalf of God to the people. Now, we want to look at that today and begin to look at just a little portion, a little snapshot out of Elisha's life. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me in whatever format you have into the Old Testament, the First Kings chapter 19. We're just going to look at three verses of Scripture today, and there's two things, two principles that apply to our lives that come out of this. First Kings chapter 19, beginning with verse 19. This is where we first hear about this guy named Elisha. So Elijah, that was the older guy who was the rock star, went from there and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Stop. Imagine this. This was his job. Day after day after day. Can you imagine what it would be like to be behind 12 pair of oxen? What's your view like? Oxen rears. All day long. Every day, oxen rears. Can you imagine the smell? You can imagine the, probably the worst smell you can imagine. It's probably a lot worse than that. All day long. But his, this was his preparation for being a prophet, being used by God or a greater life. And there was no word says that he did anything else to be, you know, God choosing him to be the person that follows up Elijah. I mean, he lived this monotonous day after day, same thing day after day, nothing but oxen rears and oxen dung. That was kind of the deal, you know? For some of us, as we start this year, some of you have been off this past week. All you cat people have been off this past week, maybe two weeks, if you worked it out right. I understand a lot of cat people figure out how to take two weeks off at the end of the year. And uh, so, I mean, some of you, some of you, and if you're a student, if you're in high school, or elementary school. Now, I understand the high school has one more day off tomorrow, but the elementary school has to go back to school tomorrow, okay? 
Now, I don't know how the high schools get, you know, y'all guys are so cool that you get off an extra day. But uh, the deal is, you, you know, so tomorrow, it, most of us are by Tuesday, everybody else has to probably go back to work or school, right? Aren't you excited? You look pumped. You're going like, man, i got to go back to my office and we're going to have 12 meetings because we had not been around in a while to figure out what's going on. That's all y'all do at Cats have meetings, I understand. And... Um, and you have email, and you have to do that, and you got to talk to people, and you got to design stuff, and you got all the things you got to do. It's going to be the same old, same old, same old, same old, same old, right? Yeah, okay. And those in school, you walk into school, you know what's going to happen, right? You're going to class, and you see the same old teachers, and the same old people in there. Some you like, some you don't like. Same with the teachers. Some of the teachers don't like some of you, too. But it's going to be the same old, same old, right? You got a couple of week break from that, and you're thinking like, oh, this is so And the reason it's so cool is because you get some time off from the same old, same old. That's why holidays and breaks are fun, right? Now, you won't be doing what Elisha did. You won't be following around oxen rears. But you have your own thing you got to do, the same old, same old stuff all the time. And it can become a rut that we get stuck in. And it, become, it can cause us to become kind of spiritually and, and, and emotionally complacent in life. It, it makes us lose our energy and our passion. And this is what was going on in this story here. It says that Eli, Elisha was, was, was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. And then an in a normal, predictable day, something unpredictable happened. It says in verse 19c that Elijah went up to him, and he threw his cloak around him. Now, if we don't understand the culture here, we don't understand what is, what's this big deal. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. This is literally, it was a symbolic way of taking his cloak and throwing it on him was saying like, I am passing the blessing that I have had all these years. And remember, Elijah was a rock star among prophets. And I'm going to pass this to you. And God's now going to bless you. And God's going to lead you to do what I have done, and we come to find out later, twice more than what he has done. He's going to use him in incredible ways. He was, it's, the, it's the doorway to a greater life, something he never could possibly have imagined as he followed around those oxen. But now the real choice comes. Because when he threw his cloak around him, Elisha had an option. His option was either accept the cloak and the mantle that God was placing upon him are rejected. Is he going to choose, Elisha going to choose the greater life that God has called him to? Or is he going to spend the rest of his life looking at oxen rears? That's the choice. Verse 20. This is where the application comes in for us. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. And then he said this though. He said, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Now let me ask you, does it say anywhere about what kind of preparation he made to make this decision? Did he go out and make a checklist of do's and don'ts or you know, pros and cons against following Elijah? Did he go to a therapist and ask, you know, is everything all right with me because I'm considering doing this or am I messed up? Did he, did he, did he pray? They didn't even say he prayed about it. 
Now, I know that's almost sacrilegious to say and even pray about it, but I want to talk about why that's important in just a minute here. Did he ask the salary and the benefits that he was going to get? No. He just simply said to Elijah, he said, Elisha said he left his oxen and ran after Elijah, and the only thing he asked him to do was go and kiss his parents by, which is very appropriate. Now, the application of this, the point to this is this. This is for me and for you. This is what I see in this. You don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. You don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. Do you think that Elisha had any idea what was going to happen to him? Do you think he even had a clue that he was going to have, that he was going to do, at this point he hadn't asked for the double portion. He had any idea that, that, what, that, that God was even going to grant that, that God was going to even do anything, anything at all through him like he had done through Elijah. Let me give you a leadership principle out of this right here before we go on. So often people ask me and people probably ask you if you work in a business world or if you work in a business or whatever, you know, what's your five-year plan? Anybody ask you that? What's your, what's your plan for the future? And usually in the business world, it's a five-year plan, okay? I will tell you this. I used to really be a proponent of that. I think it's great to have vision for the future and cast vision for the future. I think that's great. But I've come to understand something. That we live in a world that is changing so quickly that I can't possibly know what's going to happen that far out. And so what I, as I've listened and read and I've constantly listened to leadership things and, and, and from pastors and of, of you know, large churches that are doing incredibly well of managing stuff, and, 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 and you know what they do? They don't plan any further out than 18 to 24 months. Because they realize that it's not so much about having a long-term plan, but it's about being able to respond to what's going on in the present because God is constantly at work. Our God is an ever-changing God. I mean, he changes things around us. He changes us. He doesn't change himself. And what we need to do is respond to the movement of God. And so what we need to do in our lives from a leadership perspective is to be able to, ha be able to have a place in our life where we can respond to things around us. That means we have to have financial margin in our lives. It means we have to have time that we're not, our time is not so packed in that we don't listen to what God's doing and see what he's doing and join in with him. That we don't, that we understand that we have to develop next generation leaders to do the things that need to be done because if we simply depend upon ourselves and God expands what we, he wants to do, then we have to have people that can do that. We have to be able to respond to what God is doing. It's kind of like this, we have to posture, we have to have a posture of spiritual readiness that we're ready to say yes when God asks us to do something and it's clear that's from God and I believe that's exactly where Elisha was at I don't know anything about his background we don't really know anything about him but we do know that he was ready to respond to God with a positive yes immediately when God asked it wasn't a surprise to him and it probably was a surprise in some way but it was a surprise that he was doing it now and the reality is, I find in Scripture, this is, this is not good for, most of us don't like this part, but I think it's good because God's a lot smarter than we are, particularly, I know he's smarter than I am. Um, God's directions are often in Scripture intentionally vague. You notice that? In the Old Testament, when he told Abraham, he said, Abraham, I want you to go, and what did he say? I want you to go to a land where? That I will show you. You got to go, and then I'll show you where to go. And then in the New Testament, 
uh, I was out when I was on the Sea of Galilee. I was sitting there in a boat, and I was thinking about, man, this is a cool place. You know what happened on the Sea of Galilee in the Bible between Peter and Jesus in a boat? Remember that story? That was a cool. It was another cool story. There's a lot of cool stories in Scripture, and, and the thing was, is that on that boat, uh, G, Jesus was coming out to the boat, walking on the water, and Peter said, "Jesus, let me come out to you." And what did what was what was Jesus's response? Did he give him a course on how to walk on water? And you know, nah, he just said, "Come, come." See, that's what Jesus does. He gets you started in a direction. God gets you started in a direction in life. He doesn't give you the whole details, but he says you need to take, you need to respond to God and obey immediately when you understand it's from God. I mean, for some of us, you've been coming to church for a while. You've been kind of checking out Jesus for a while through Great Oaks. You know what God, if you keep doing that, what God is telling you to do next, I can tell you what God will tell you to do. Commit. Commit. It's not enough. That's your next step. We say at Great Oaks, we're here to help people take their next step towards God. And your first step is to commit to a purpose and a life that's, that's led by God. Now, it doesn't mean he'll tell you everything that's going to happen once you commit, but he says, take that first step. For some of you are going through rocky marriage situations right now. And you've been struggling with this, and you don't know what to do. And you, and, and, and you know what God is constantly saying to you? He's going, stay. Stay in that relationship. Work through the stuff that's going on in your life. Trust me to do what I need to do in you. Some of you have an idea about a ministry, an idea about a business or something like that, and, and you keep, it keeps percolating. Maybe it's been for years. And you know what God is telling you to do? Start. Start. You'll never, get, you'll never get there unless you start. You, go like, you don't have to have the whole business plan worked out and know what's going to happen five years from now. Nobody knows. Did Cat know five years ago that the mining industry was going to fail the way it did? That's part of the reason I understand that Cat's had some problems recently. No. But the reality is, I'm not saying, in the business world it doesn't work any better than any, anybody place else. Nobody can know that far out how the, a changing world is going to work. But God is telling us in this life, if you want to live the greater life for me, you, gotta, you, gotta, you don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. The second point comes out of the next verse, verse 21. I love this verse. So Elisha left him, and he, went, he left his parents, and he went back. I left, left Elijah, went back, and he took his yoke of oxen, and he slaughtered them. And then he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah, and he became his servant. The point is this. God, those God uses the most are the ones who hold on to the least. Those whom God uses the most are the ones who hold on to the least. See, Elijah destroys and feeds to his friends the animals that were his only means of making a living. And that might seem extreme to us, but the reality is uh, uh, this wouldn't be unprecedented in their world because there were constantly offerings of animals and stuff. And so people wouldn't have thought that was totally weird. But the weird part of this was the second part. Not only did he slaughter the animals, but he took the, 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 uh, the, the uh, plows and, 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 he, and he burned them. 
And I'm going, why did he do that? Couldn't he have sold them and got some stuff, you know, and, and, and gave it to his parents or did something like that? No, no. He does a symbolic thing here. Eliza just doesn't just cook the cattle. Elisha also burns the plows. And what he, what he does in a sense is he burns the tools of his old life. And it might seem insane because, let me just give you an example. If God told you to leave the business you've had and go and do something else somewhere else, it wouldn't have to be for God, maybe some kind of new thing. Would you go out and burn the building down? That would be insane. No, what you do is you sell the building, give half to the church, you get it, and and use the rest to do whatever you want to do, right? That's what you do. You wouldn't burn a building. That's kind of like what he did here. His plows represented what he did for a living. See, burning the plows had no practical value to Elisha or anybody else. And he didn't, it wasn't a missed opportunity for recycling. It wasn't even about plows or oxen. Symbolically, though, it meant everything. Elisha was saying, was making a statement probably as much for himself as for anybody else. He was making a decisive break from his old life, from the source of his livelihood, from everything that represents the still stability and the predictability of his life behind the plow. And that's, in a sense, see, sometimes we, we really don't get what it means to follow Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, so often we think that many Christ as Lord and uh, saying yes to Christ as Lord and Savior means is we have another thing that we add to our life. When you say yes to Jesus Christ, you really mean it. It means you're saying I'm willing to put everything in my past behind me so that I can follow him wherever he leads me. That's a little little heavier than what we so often think about. But that's what it means to make somebody Lord of your life. And that may seem that what Elisha did, burning the plows and putting things behind me, was, was irresponsible. But that's not the only example in Scripture that we read. You know, in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus calls uh, Peter and John and uh, James to follow him, and they're out fishing, what does it say they did? Those who know Scripture. It says... They threw down their, their, their nets and their boats and they left everything and followed him. All their security, all their stuff. See, all of us have something that's a plow. It's what change, chains you to the ordinary. And it could be anything. It could be a present job that's not in line with what God has called you to do. A passionless, purposelessness approach that you take toward the job you have and where God is calling you to remain, a life that's a little too safe, a lifestyle that's a little too comfortable uh, and, and tends to factor out God. See, before we can go forward into what God wants us to do, and this is what we'll be talking about in this series, Living a Greater Life, you have to offer him every part of the life you have. And I would call that a plow-burning faith. How do you know when God's calling you to do something new? Well, you know, let, me, let me tell you how to position yourself to, to hear God and respond to God. And God will do this. He did it in my life, he'll do it in your life. Is there a message that seems to be 
hitting you upside the head over and over and over and over again. God keeps saying this through Scripture and through people and through circumstances and things over and over and over again, and you just hadn't responded to it. If you'll position yourself in God-focused places around God-centered people, you'll learn to hear God in greater ways. And you don't have to get all wrapped up in figuring out how God's calling will come to you. You just got to be really ready to respond in faith when it does. Too often what we do is we carry around our security blankets. We have our blankies. Remember, um, <laughs> how many of you watched uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas this year again for the 537th time? You know, some of you did. You know, there's one, kid, there's one kid in the Charlie Brown Christmas that has a blanket. What's his name? Linus. Yeah, I know, the, I know who it is, but I just want to see if y'all know who it is. Everybody knows who Linus is, you know. That's, that show's been on for like, that's a great show. It's been on for like 30, 40 years, something like that. And Linus, everywhere you see him in Charlie Brown cartoons, always has his security blanket. Unless somebody tries to steal it from him, you know, and then he fights them tooth and nail except for one place. You know, in the middle of that story, when Charlie Brown asked Linus, he says, Linus, what's the real meaning of Christmas? And you may remember the, the scene. And Linus said, I'll tell you. And so he walks out in the middle of the stage, and he begins to quote Scripture, the Christmas story. And the light comes up, and he's standing there. And guess what he does in the middle of that? I never, never realized that, but Nate told me that. Uh, uh, he said, do you know what happened? And I'm going like, really? And I went and looked at it, and it did. Linus drops his security blanket to the floor when he has his focus upon God. See, so often what we do in life is we think we can follow God and live a greater life, but we're still holding on to our security blanket, our plow, whatever it is. And it's still pulling us back into that life, and we never experience what God really wants to do in our lives, this greater life that he wants us to have, whatever it may be for us. And what God is telling us, we just step toward our destiny, and the only way we can do that is to step away from our security. I love what it says in Luke 9, 62. It kind of refers to the same thing. Jesus replied, it says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. In just a couple of minutes, we're going to sing a closing song. And I asked the, the, the band to sing this song because... I think it's meaningful for what we're talking about today. It's an old song. It's a song I grew up with when I was a kid growing up in a traditional Baptist church back in Virginia. And it's a song that, that we've made contemporized and made it a little more contemporary in this format, but the words still are the same. It's called, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. I don't know if you know that song or not, but it's a, it's a powerful song because you know what the words are in that song? Especially, I think it's the third verse in the song. It says, the world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. See, it's really a matter of surrender. The question is, will you burn the plows? Will, will you allow God to push aside the things in your life that's holding you back? And will you let go of those things, your security blanket or whatever it is? Because God wants to let you have a greater life, a more purposeful life, if you'll just let him. See, God 
never intended, never intended for believers to play it safe. You know, one thing is, I know one thing from Scripture that's true. You were never meant, you and I were never meant to follow oxen rears. Because he has something greater for us. So let me ask you a question this morning. What is it? What personal plow do you want to burn? Do you need to burn? Now you may not know that this time, but I challenge you this week to take inventory of your life and ask, what's holding you back? What thing are you holding on to for security that keeps you from being and doing what God wants you to do and be? And until you identify what that is, you can't let go of it. You can't burn the plow. But once you identify what it is, God wants you to let go of that so that you can go forward with what he wants you to do. He wants you to live a greater life, a life of purpose and meaning. It doesn't mean perfect life. It means a greater life. See, it's not only important to, not only important to count the cost of burning the plows, but it's also important to count the cost of not burning the plows. Because if you don't burn them, you will never live the greater life that God has for you. Let's pray. God, I turn to you right now and I ask that you would allow us to have the boldness and the audacity in our lives to recognize that there are things in our life that are holding us back. All of us have plows, me included. Sometimes they're big things, sometimes they're small things. But God, anytime there are things that hold us back from trusting you fully, from having the faith in you and acting upon those things that we need to, God, we understand that more than anything else, you want to guide us and, and help us, God, to live the greater life you've called us to. Over the next several weeks, as we look at this incredible person in the Old Testament, really it was a, a person who was very plain, very unremarkable in every way except for one thing. He had postured himself to be able to respond to you, God, even when he didn't know what the future was going to hold, to say yes to you, to have the faith to follow your plan for his life. And because of that, he was willing even to burn the plows and push aside anything that would hold him back from going back to that old lifestyle. So, God, we'd ask we'd have that same faith, that same desire in our hearts. And, God, it means taking the first small step towards that. It's not a huge step. It's a small step we take. And the first step is to identify those things in our life that hold us back. God, allow us this morning and this week to confront our greatest fears and to trust in you, God, for our future. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd ask you to stand with us and sing this closing song. I have decided to follow Jesus.